0: Thank you for sharing your gift with us, Bronson. All of you who are not going to go to that concert tonight are going to miss out on something very special. Last year, Mr. Bronson James unintentionally stole the show. He is one of the leading soloists in the choral group that performs here about once or twice a year. They're going to do Cole Porter, I understand. It has some of the most magnificent songs. I could not believe that they put him in that get-up they did, and actually asked this gentleman to perform last year, Old Man River. Cut off clothes, barefoot and all, came out, did Old Man River, and just brought tears to your eyes, brought the house down. He did such a marvelous job. If you were to concentrate for a few moments and think about the one thing, and like the game called the wheel, The thing I speak of is not necessarily a specific object, but just something. The one something, the one thing that you want most in life just now. What if you had one wish right now would be the one thing or something that you would want to see or to see happen? If you were to ask probably 1,000 Americans, I don't know how many of them would say, I need $1 million. How many would say, I need a new home? If judging from our mail, we go over in our Friday morning prayer breakfast when a grandmother is saying, my grandson is in prison, or my son is on drugs, or my daughter is pregnant, or I have terminal cancer, or I'm looking at an operation this coming Tuesday, I imagine many people would say I would like to be healed of cancer or I'd like to see my grandson out of jail. But I wonder if 1,000 Americans would invariably, if they were asked the question, what one thing would you like in life, would think instead of something for themselves, would think of something for someone else. I wonder if out of those 1,000 Americans, anyone would think, Oh, how wonderful it would be if no more Kurdish babies had to die, if instead of 1,000 Kurds per day dying in what looks like an abysmal scene out of an imaginary hell, women down scooping snow in a frozen snowbank out with a little cup or a tin can to take it back and to heat it so they can convert it into water. Children actually wading knee-deep in turgid, muddy, icy streams where they are bathing, defecating, and drinking from the same water. Scenes that you and I have seen on television night after night, scenes that have been captured by still cameras in Life and Newsweek and Time magazine that are just absolutely impossible to bear. I saw the two elderly ladies who were washing the waxen, gray, whitish body of a little one- or two-year-old baby preparing it for burial. That was in one of the leading weekly news magazines very recently. I imagine very few of us would actually think, I want something for somebody else. Americans are afflicted with a strange disease. We live in a land of plenty. As no other people in no other time in all of history, we are a nation that is spoiled, rotten, and we don't realize it. Our favorite entertainment are game shows. Some of our people can get more excited, I think, about watching The Wheel of Fortune or The Price is Right or to enjoy vicariously somebody else winning one of the state lottos. How many people are fantastically excited and calling and writing to people in some other state? Like just a week or so ago, they had some astronomical number, I forget what it was, 20, 30, 50 million, maybe more, maybe 100 million in the state of California. And people basically who are poor on fixed incomes who can least afford it are the people who go out and buy the lotto tickets because of that American dream of finding the Brinks bag that tumbles out the back end of the truck as it careens around the corners. one man did. His life was made miserable. But it's striking it rich when our ship comes in, when we make it big, when we strike it rich. And so we've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of burglars, robbers, bank robbers, criminals we got white collar crooks and blue collar crooks and of course we're looking now at the insanity of the SNL scandals where you and I and all of the other millions of american taxpayers are going to put the bill for a handful comparatively of cheats of unscrupulous white collar manipulators of inside traders of people in the SNLs who have actually absconded with hundreds of millions and in some cases stolen up to the billions of dollars and are not even going to pay for it with one day in jail. It's merely a commentary on our times. I want you to go back in time with me in a time machine and let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis in the twelfth chapter where God said, Unto Abram, get thee out of thy country. This was stated to him up in Ur, which is not very far from modern-day Baghdad, where the war was just recently concluded and American bombs were falling. And from your kindred and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So Abraham departed. Abram, his name was later changed in the 17th and 19th chapter, you see that, to Abraham. As the Eternal had commanded him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years of age when he went out of Haran and journeyed many hundreds of miles across what is now western Iraq, across Jordan, and on up to the land toward Mount Moriah. And a little later on, they inhabited what is now called Jordan or Transjordan and that valley along toward the Dead Sea. You'll notice a little later on in the 13th chapter, It says that Abram went up out of Egypt. Well, you see, first of all, that he pitched his tent in that area, and then there was a drought, so they went down to Egypt, and they sojourned there for a time. And in the 13th chapter, they went up. It said in verse 2 that Abram was very rich in cattle, rich in cattle. had a lot of cattle out there, and in silver. I wonder what form the silver was in, probably in vessels, maybe urns, maybe pots, Maybe utensils, maybe even bars. Maybe it certainly would not have been little idolatrous figures of any kind. It might have been silversmith's work, maybe like a, an eagle or something that represented a creature in nature, who knows. And in gold, had gold as well. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, under the place where his tent, his tent had been at the beginning. And notice it says in verse 5, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Gold and silver and cattle and tents. And then later on when it said there were so many of them they had to separate, it says in verse 11, Then Lot and those with him went to the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. They separated themselves, the one from the other. and Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Zadda. So now in our time machine, we suddenly just materialize on a plain and we get out and we see in the distance a lot of kind of misshapen black looking things. And as we get closer and closer, we notice that they are tents. And most of them for thousands of years have made their tents out of goat skins and they stitch them together. And they're actually black, and I have seen many times traveling all over the Middle East the Bedouin tents, and they have been unchanged now for many, many centuries. So we would come closer and we would see a tent flap open up, and out here on the plain we would see little creeks and rivulets, and there would be a certain amount of foliage and green grass and trees, there would have to be provender, and foliage for all of these cattle and sheep and goats, and they would be eating, it wouldn't look like a desolate desert wilderness the way it does today. It would have been a land of of greenery, far different than today. But we would see a tent flap stir and open, and an old gentleman would come out, probably with a white beard and white hair, maybe even with a staff to walk, and he might have been a little bit bent over with the lumbago, and we would see him shuffle from the one large tent over to a smaller tent. And he would open up the tent flap and go in. We'd see it kind of move around a minute and get still, and we'd understand what he was doing in there. He'd be going to the outhouse. Abram. And we'd probably see him sitting in the tent flap in the heat of the day, and one of his grandchildren would come by. And he might take out a knife and pick up a piece of wood, put the kid there, and start whittling and talking to it. What would he talk about? Colossians 2, 15... How much did Abraham know about the difficult scriptures of the Apostle Paul? How much did he talk about the annual holy days? How many proof texts did he know? Was he a fountain source of biblical knowledge? Well, there wasn't any Bible during those days, so I imagine that Abram would have talked about cattle. He would have talked about the antics of a baby goat. He would have talked about a particular cow that was one of his favorites that had already given him about nine calves, every one of which was a a real good calf. He might have talked about human nature, about the weather, about last year's crops, about growing things, about the garden, about his wife. In other words, he would have talked about agrarian things, down-to-earth human things involving his immediate close and his distant family he might have wondered about a lot i wonder how a lot is making out but he wouldn't have talked about the things we tend to talk about gold but no gold doorknobs silver but no silver service set you and i whether we live in a mobile home or a modest house or a larger house would walk up and look at this man of whom the bible says he was greatly blessed And he was rich in gold and silver. And we would click our tongues and say, how in the world can a human being live like that? Because he lived in a tent with another tent for an outhouse. Now let's come back in our time machine to Tyler, Texas, let me tell you what happened out where I live in Emerald Bay on Wednesday. Gentleman with whom I played golf many times, Mr. Byron Johnson, was a psychiatrist. He had been active in a psychiatry, I don't know if it is state, I think it perhaps had to do with the state, but anyway, he was an official and had been dealing with other people's problems for many, many years. Hadn't seen Byron in quite a while, although I'd played golf with him in a foursome from time to time or in a Friday afternoon scramble, both he and his wife. Lives in a nice home, Emerald Bay has a lot of nice homes. Wednesday afternoon, his wife came in in the golf cart, drove into the garage in her golf cart, and looked, and there was a husband hanging from the rafters. He had put a rope around his neck and climbed up on a chair and kicked the chair away and hung himself to death. About a year and a half ago, another gentleman that I knew real well named Mr. Ray McMillan lived in Emerald Bay and... His wife had died about six months earlier. He lived in one of the finer homes out there, a very large home. He drove a Lincoln town car. He bought six, eight, ten different sets of golf clubs, every one of them a top line, kept them a month or two, and bought another one. But his days consisted of going to the club and playing gin rummy, and then going in an afternoon and evening to watch TV and coming back to the club and having some drinks and eating and going home because his wife wasn't there to cook for him anymore. Watching some more TV and getting up in the morning and coming back to the club and playing gin rummy all day. Well, one day he made all his arrangements and typed out the note and got in his Lincoln Town car and drove down to the local funeral parlor right down here by the bank over on, uh, oh, I forget the name of the street. Got out of his Lincoln Town car and lay down on a blanket that he'd gotten out of the trunk and took out a thirty-eight pistol and blew his brains out. Two gentlemen who lived in in homes that would bedazzle any Iraqi, any Arab, any person in Central or South America. Tens of millions of human beings on this earth have never even looked inside the kind of homes Mr. Byron Johnson and Ray McMillan lived in. But somehow life was just not worth living to them anymore. They were miserable. They were unhappy. They were forlorn. They were alone, perhaps. They were sick, afflicted, maybe even in a little bit of pain. And so life was not living, and they simply wanted out. I preach many times about long-range goals and short-range goals, about success and how it is not a goal in itself, but something that we continually pursue that we never really quite achieve. But I want to talk today about riches and poverty about those who do not know what really are the true riches and do not know that true riches are only as far away as between you and the floor when you take your body and get it in a position that is called kneeling on your knees and how a person can become absolutely rich in patience rich in faith rich in love which is outgoing love and concern and care toward others, rich in qualities of spiritual character, while being, quote, poor, end quote, the way the world measures riches. We've all heard the stories, the various anecdotal stories, and there are dozens about multi-millionaires. I happen to know a few in my time, including Hewlett C. Merritt, who... When he died, his estate was worth about $200 million, that's a fair amount of change, and owned something like 17 separate corporations and was a chief stockholder in U.S. Steel. But he went to court against his own son, and in a bitter court fight, his own son committed suicide. And when his wife died, he had her buried in a solid sterling silver coffin. He became a lonely old man seen going in and out of bargain basement stores down on South Spring Street and Olive and Fifth Street in Los Angeles, which is basically a sort of a skid row, buying old hats and shoes and lampshades and cast off things at places like the Salvation Army or the Goodwill store that he didn't need, couldn't use, but was just sort of gone mentally. One of our young students went over there and at that time they were paying something like a dollar and a quarter an hour minimum wage to mow his yard. And he worked for him for about a week and it came time to collect his check. The old gentleman didn't like the work, wasn't satisfied with it, and reneged on the check and wouldn't pay the young student a dollar and a quarter an hour for that work, though he was a multi-multi-millionaire. He died a miserable, lonely old man. Then there was J. Paul Getty of Getty Oil, who was a multi-millionaire, hundreds of millions of dollars, who once said, sadly, before he died, that he would give all of his millions to have just one happy marriage, because he'd had several marriages, but he had never been able to find that partner in life who had also become his friend. He was never able to marry his best friend. He was able to marry a 19-year-old centerfold prostitute or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm saying that loosely just because they uh, get in those poses and say, let's get to know each other better and have a camera take pictures of every part of their anatomy. It doesn't necessarily mean, I guess, they're prostitutes, but maybe not very short of that. They're, they're prostituting their character, let's say, and their body for money. Maybe they're not going the whole route, but he could have all of those he wanted, but he could never find a friend and marry his best friend. So the poor old man had several unsuccessful marriages, and nothing hurts worse, even if you're rich, than rejection, because misery is misery. If you're poor and miserable, you're miserable, and if you're rich and miserable, you are miserable, and there is no difference in degree. The poor are not more miserable than the rich. They're both equally as miserable, and it seems that the rich tend to take it out upon themselves And because people are mesmerized by riches and they want to read about the lives of the rich and famous, they want to convince themselves that the rich and famous are really standing around here knee-deep in refuse and awful and garbage like the rest of us, which is why the people like Kitty What's-Her-Name that they're taking to task in some of the weekly news magazines who did such a number on Nancy Reagan are so successful because the average American has the appetite of a squealing, grunting, shoving, bellowing Yorkshire hog. We want to wallow at the slop trough in all the garbage of other people's lives. It's great entertainment. That's why some of the greatest magazines like People and all the peephole type stuff you get at the checkout stand in the supermarket that give you the straight scoop about a boy giving birth to a dolphin or whatever. I mean there's stuff in there that probably about that bizarre. I made that up. But I mean there are things about that bizarre in there and and headlines about all sorts of crazy things. People buy that junk, and some of those people are making fortunes on the appetite of human beings who want to read that kind of thing. I want to turn to the twelfth chapter of the book of Luke and begin in about the thirteenth verse, Luke 12 and verse 13. Jesus Christ talked about this subject a great deal. Many of his parables dwelt upon it. We like to think that this scripture that has to do with Solomon and all of his glory was not clothed as one of these is basically a little bit of esoterica, the idea that we ought to have a philosophy in our minds that we really don't need material things. That even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like a lily, or consider the lily of the field. It doesn't spin, it doesn't weave, etc., but it's so glorious. But that doesn't get the job done to most people. They read that and it's a little bit of spiritual fluff, but it doesn't really sound too terribly practical to many of them. In the thirteenth verse of the twelfth chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus is asked to arbitrate between people like the executor of an estate. One of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. His brother was doing something, some kind of legal skullduggery, and the father had died, and the brother wants his half. The other brother isn't letting him have it. And so the young gentleman came to Jesus as a man that he thought had the authority and the charisma and the personality to do something about this. He's not giving me what is mine, and I want my things. I want my money. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And then Jesus took this opportunity to give his disciples a lesson. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Why in the Tenth Commandment did God go to such great lengths to even spell out the various things that we should not covet? And why is covetousness something that is spoken of by the Apostle Paul as being exactly the same thing as idolatry? Because covetousness can become a disease. It can become an obsession. A driving desire, an insatiable kind of an itch you can't scratch, a desire that just eats away inside at you to want something. I have told you before about the Mad Magazine cartoon some years ago that showed from the rear a typical American family, the husband, the wife, and the son, and the daughter, stair-steps, and they're standing in front of the glittering showcase of one gorgeous storefront after another. and in. The great cloud above them, the way they characterize people's speech. It says, I want. And the next scene, there were boats and RVs and motorcycles. I want. And the next scene, it was clothing. And I want. And the next scene, it was a jewelry store. I want. And then it was a hardware store. All he wanted was tools and chisels and everything. I want. And, you know, a lot of people take shopping trips. I'm the world's worst shopper. I will run straight in, go to the forties on a rack. They don't have the color I want, I'm out of there before a salesman can get near me. But if they got the color I want, I'll go up there, may I help you No, thanks, I can get into it myself, walk over there, see if it fits, I'll take this one, I'm out of there. Walking down a mall, walking along in a store, fingering the goods, Ooh, look at that. People absolutely throng. I have been in Europe recently, I've been in Japan a couple of times the last couple of years. When the stores are closed, there are thousands of people in the streets walking along, looking. So it's not just an American habit. It happens overseas in Europe, in Japan, and all over the world. Looking. Just thinking what it would be like to have that. Very few people can pass a glittering jewelry store with some five-carat diamonds there. They've got to stop and look. Take a look at all of that. Well, Jesus Christ said to beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Do we believe that? Could you be happy in a tent? Well, let me tell you a story about a gentleman who was a very good friend of mine, and I hope still is. I haven't seen him or heard from him in quite a while now. Dr. Lynn Torrance, probably about four or five years older than I am, was a young G.I. on the island of Mindanao in the Philippines when the Japanese struck Clark Field on December 8, 1941. Later on they began bombing the field where he was in Mindanao, and of course we all know that before very long all of Luzon had fallen, and eventually, even though they had surrounded Corregidor, and Corregidor held out for quite a period of time, all the Philippines basically had fallen to the Japanese, and long before Corregidor fell, Mr. Lynn Torrance, who later on went to college and got himself a doctor's degree and became the registrar at Ambassador College, was captured by the Japanese. They were all lined up and marched to some trucks, and the trucks took them to some docks, and the docks put down the gangplanks, and Dr. Torrance gave many, many different lectures in the student forums and assemblies over a couple of decades to college students to reflect on his experience at that time how afraid he was. The Japanese there, with their big long bayonets, prodding them and hitting them in the back with the butt of the rifle and herding them up into the hold of an old, rusty, tramp steamer. And they went down into the hold, and they were just jammed in there, a whole lot of them. Well, they got down in there, and they were packed so tightly they could hardly move, and they clamped the lid down on the hatch and they could hear the ship rumbling and so on, and little by little it was under underway, and they got out into the sea, and the men began to become terribly thirsty. And they began to say, water, we want water, we could just have some water. And they began to scream and yell to the Japanese guards, we need water. Well, there was no water forthcoming. But as it got hotter, and they were all in there, packed in there together, All of a sudden, water wasn't as important as air! And they began yelling and saying, give us air, open up the hatch, we've got to breathe! Some of them began to die. Well, that went on all that day and all the next day until the final part of that next day, I believe. They opened up the hatch and they threw in several sacks of mostly rotten sweet potatoes. And for a moment they could get a breath of air. And they scrambled around fighting over the sweet potatoes. But these men who grabbed these sweet potatoes and they were rotten and just ate them as fast as they could suddenly developed roaring dysentery. And they were standing there jammed this tight together. And there was no stopping the bodily functions. Can you imagine a scene that is like being in hell? Finally, they let some of them up on the deck, and those who did were so crazed, they immediately dove over the side to commit suicide. Lynn Torrance went through that experience all the way to Japan, and I believe about half of those many hundreds of men that they jammed into that hold arrived alive. He was a prisoner of the Japanese for the better part of four and a half or five years. He helped carry out the bodies of his dead buddies and would witness on more than one occasion someone who had gotten hold of a piece of metal and sharpened it and made it into a little knife, who would secretly cut out a little piece of emaciated flesh from a dead thigh and stick it in his pocket and go back and eat it somewhere in secret. There have been human beings who have been through experiences that you and I cannot even imagine in our wildest nightmares. And there are human beings now, in Iraq and Iran and Turkey, among the Kurds that are going through experiences that we cannot imagine. Now, I know that time and time again we like to say, there but for the grace of God go I. I thought of that last night and again this morning, especially when I saw TV news. Yesterday afternoon, son and grandson were over there. Here came a huge big thunderstorm. We began to get the TV news that there was a weather cell down here by Bullard. And we began hearing this ding, 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 I looked out, and there were big white things jumping around the yard, and I opened the door and ran out and got one. It was about the size of the kind of a cube that you get out of your own ice maker. And there were ice cubes coming out of the sky and banging around on the property and banging off my, my truck. And just barely south of us was a huge cell going by, and there's a little town called Mount Selman down here somewhere on Highway 69. There was a gentleman, if you read about it in the Tyler paper this morning, was standing in the service station quick food stop down there and a tornado came by and blew the roof completely off of it and across the street he's quoted on the front page of the local paper in Tyler today but in Kansas they've already counted more than 22 dead why didn't that tornado hit my house well but for God's protection but for the grace of God it could have sure it could have years ago my wife and I were out in our car in our garage, because it's one of the strongest parts on the opposite side of the house where a tornado might have been coming from, with the radio on to an FM station listening to them telling people, get out of your mobile homes, get in a ditch even if it's full of water, take cover, because there were several tornadoes touching down at Mixon, Bullard, Frankston, and coming right toward us, and it was terrifying. Now that wasn't your house. That was those people up in Kansas. So if I ask a question of a thousand people, what is it if you could have if you would want right now? Most of all, I'd probably have a litany of about ten things or a dozen things, twenty things. I'd like to have my dad resurrected and go see him. Number one, I'd like to have him resurrected and me stand right there. There! Before anybody else could get between us. Come, let's sit down and talk. That'd be one thing pretty high on my list. But there'd be a lot of other things. I'd like to have my son David Matthew be able to suddenly hear my voice. There'd be a lot of things I'd think about, but I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't think about. I wouldn't think about a new set of golf clubs. Uh, I can't play with the old set. I mean, you know, with, with my back, forget it. But you think about what most people would pick if they had an opportunity, and it is a little bit of a commentary on human nature. He spoke a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, verse 16, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, or myself, Self, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of thee, then whose shall those things be which you have provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and, it's a full statement here, and is not rich toward God. If you have both, it's a bad mixture but if you were to be rich toward God and to have material riches think how much good you could do with those material riches two weeks from now God willing we will all be meeting in a beautiful gleaming new building and let's hope and pray the air conditioning is on by that time I did not produce that building I had nothing to do with it except indirectly not a single one of you produced that building you didn't make the decision You didn't donate the money. I hope all of you obey God and tithe, and that definitely contributes to it. But all of us are indebted to the Holy Spirit of God that somehow moved on the mind of an elderly woman living alone whose son had bitterly had a falling out with her and attempted to put her in a nursing home. And she was glued to the television set every Sunday morning when I came on. And I was making the same TV programs that I do all the time in my office, but this woman was getting something out of that to the point that though she did not have a large estate, it was somewhere around the $220,000 amount, I think, she determined, and she knew that she was near death, that she was going to give in her will her money, her estate, to the Garner Chet Armstrong Evangelistic Association, to the Church of God International. Not to me personally, but to the church that I represent, to the work that I represent. And bless her memory and bless her heart. And we're going to have a little plaque. I think, Mac, you're, you're going to work on that for you, for us, aren't you? And uh, we're going to have a little plaque in the memory of Mrs. Emma Dengler. You'll all be able to see it, because that lady who did that unselfishly not wanting other people the state or someone else or her son who had mistreated her so badly, although he did receive a very large sum of money, I think $50,000 or something. But anyway, he's probably angry about that. I'm sorry that those things happened. That wasn't our fault. We were more than generous than we had to be, far, far more than we had to be, actually, in uh, giving him what he did receive, which would have helped him a great deal. But that lovely, wonderful lady that I never met was not a member of this church made our new church building here in Tyler and a place for the Feast of Tabernacles and recreation for our children or summer camp possible. She was rich in faith, and she's made us richer in physical material things that would be a blessing to our church and to all of our people because of that act. I think that is a remarkable example. So he told his disciples, verse 22, That's because, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Now, if you look at the original, this is anxious thought. It is agonizing thought. It is really nervous, concerned, worried thought. It doesn't mean we're not to prepare. It doesn't mean we're not to plan. It doesn't mean we cannot have short-range goals. And certainly when you put all of the scriptures together that say that God wants us to have life and life more abundantly and that a wise man lays up for his children's children, meaning his grandchildren, that God wants us to be successful, that he wants us to prosper. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. All of those things apply. He is saying, take no anxious thought. For your life your immediate future what you shall eat neither for the body what you shall put on now anxious thought is being overly concerned about clothing anxious thought is being like a gourmet or even a glutton the body is more than meat the life is more than meat or food and the body is more than clothing consider the ravens they neither sow nor reap now before we leave that thought let me tell you about a lot of people that i know and i'm sure you've known people like this as well have you ever known people whose basic lives, concerns, and interests are taken up with exactly that, with food and clothing, with appearance? you ever known people that we say are like clothes horses, who just have to continually wear real jazzy clothes and will just go absolutely crazy buying clothes? I have known people with a compulsion to buy clothes. Now, let me just mention one very famous person. She could have shod a couple of our marine divisions if they'd wear high-heeled shoes. The wife of Marcos, Imelda Marcos of the Philippines, and probably some of that money came from my father because he shoved, shoveled several hundred thousand dollars into the Marcos personal pot uh, over there in the Philippines. But she had rooms filled with shoes, and she would go into a shoe store and say, I'll take ten of those, and a dozen of those, and those, just give me the whole shelf, that box will do fine. And she'd buy pink, blue, green, gray, and black of that style, and then all the other colors. And here's this woman, probably with wide feet and short toes and all that, and had these hundreds and hundreds of pairs of shoes that she could never wear. Now that's something wrong up here, that's a sort of a disease of the mind. She'd have been far better off if she'd been buying baby shoes and giving them to the poor. But she had to have all of those clothes. The life is more than that. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Now, this is not saying that you should wander around without a job and say, I'm a raven, and I'm sure God's going to feed me today. Because ravens, you know, eat carrion. It got run over. I see him picking on the carcass of a dead uh, armadillo. You don't want to eat like that. And they'll go around picking up bugs or maybe get into your garbage if you leave it out. But God is giving the contrast between people who are overly concerned about materialism. How much better are you than fowls? And which of you, by taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why do you take thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothed the grass, and here is the lesson, remember, this is our Savior Jesus Christ that is saying this, which today is in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more you, or will he clothe you as implied, owe you of little faith. Now, how does that apply? you have a project? I know a woman that writes to us regularly that had some kind of an invention involving some farm equipment machinery. There are other people who have written to us about projects that they have and they want our prayer on Friday morning prayer breakfast that God will open a door for them to market this thing that they're inventing. That's great. I love that kind of a letter because they want to make God their business partner and they want God to open doors for them and to provide a way for them to become successful and invariably they will say, that way I can help the church more and I can help my kids more, my grandkids. And they are usually some pretty unselfish ways of expressing why they want some help. We all understand, I think, how rare it is for God to call people out of this world that is subject to the mark of the beast and the image of the beast and the number of his name. This is a Sunday-keeping world attuned to and in step with the Catholic and the Protestant churches. It is totally out of step with God's Sabbath-keeping people. When you try to get a job or keep a job and the Sabbath is involved, for the last 40-some years I have dealt with some of the most heart-rending stories you can imagine, including breadwinners of large families who said, no, I'm going to obey God. And they come to the Feast of Tabernacles and come back home and find that the menial job that they had is gone. And they've got to pray and beat the streets and look in the want ads and go around. And you go in and ask for a job and say, what, but, but, by the way, I've got to have Saturdays from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset off. Oh, well, that's our busiest day. Well, we can't do that. You know how many times you get turned down? When you say, oh, by the way, I've also got to have Thursday, October, so-and-so off, because that's the Day of Atonement. I've also got to have the Feast of Tabernacles off, because that's eight. I've also got to have the first and second Day of Unleavened Bread. Then there's trumpets. What kind of a weirdo nut are you? I never heard of things. What in the world is the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, it happens. It is rare for a person to completely surrender to God and obey God on on, on the subject of the Sabbath last sabbath when i was in new orleans and i was preaching people down there i got exercised a little bit about god's law and i was talking about how difficult it is to obey god in the one test commandment to trust him to have faith that god will provide for you that's what this is really dealing with to be rich in faith toward god to obey god and to say god is going to help me if i obey him first to achieve the true riches but there's another An aspect to this, and that is that perhaps in measuring riches, you will learn to treasure what you have. Now, what do you have? Well, a lot of you are sitting here beside your spouse. What's that worth? Is your spouse your best friend? Mine is. My confidant. Best friend I have ever had, little Shirley Hammer Armstrong. My best friend. My children, three of them sitting in this room, one little precious grandson, what do I have? If my house, right as this storm cell came by, were plucked up from the face of the earth, I'd feel sad about some of the things out there, and I wouldn't feel sad about my nice rifle, or as sad as I would about some things I'll tell you about. I'd feel real sad about some old letters of ours and about some family albums of ours, far more so than I would about a rifle or my paintings or stuff like that or clothing. I can replace clothing, but I can't replace the love letters I wrote to her when she was seventeen. I'd feel bad about that. But even if it were all gone and it was just a hole in the ground where my house used to be, I'd look and say, there's Shirley and the two of us together. We're going to start over, and we're going to make it. That happened to us in a kind of a microcosm one time. We were, on a rare occasion, we were able to go camping up at Yosemite, and we were up there in a tent. Here came Herman A. from the college. He said, guess what? Yesterday or night before last, your house burnt. Oh, no, we couldn't believe it. So we're going like this with our heart and our throat all the way home. When we turned in that front driveway, our bedroom was upstairs on a two-story house right in the front, and all of our clothing, including a little mink stole that my father had bought his daughter-in-law and my wife, Shirley, up in that upstairs bedroom, and the whole front of the house just looked like a huge, big cavity where you'd pulled a tooth out. It was gone. The roof was gone, just a big old black hole where a bedroom used to be, and every stitch of clothing we had, I was in some old jeans and Levi's and had fish scales on it, and that's all I owned. That's the only clothing we had. And we just started talking about what we had. So, you know, you will learn those lessons. I remember the Pyle family years ago, and they were following the fruit harvest, and they were from Arkansas, but they'd take that whole passel of kids and go all the way out to California and Oregon and Washington State and follow the apple orchards and pick apples for a living in the summer or in the fall to get clothes for those kids to go back to Arkansas and go to school. And they were in a little bitty old rental house out there with every stitch of clothing and every possession that they'd ever accumulated, and the thing burnt right flat to the ground. Not a bit of insurance, and they were poor to start with they survived they made it came right on back and everything in a few years was just fine I've got a lot of scriptures I could go through I don't want to belabor this I just want to tell you that some equate success only with earning money I want to tell you a couple of humorous stories about that because one guy said to a fellow how is your son the doctor is he making enough money and they said, oh, yeah, my son finally is really making enough money that would you believe he can now afford to tell a patient there's nothing wrong with him? That's, that's when you become successful as a doctor. And there was a person who asked a salesman, said, to what do you owe your success as a salesman? He says, the first words out of my mouth when the lady answers the door is, ma'am, is your mother in? He said, you'd be surprised how flattery will get you everywhere. And then there's a story that I read about a successful man who retired with his three million dollars and the entire fortune was due to hard work, strict attention to duty, absolute honesty, determination, thrift and ingenuity, and his rich uncle who left him two million nine hundred and ninety-eight thousand five hundred dollars. I've heard all of the old cliches, if you've got to be miserable, let's be miserable in style. I've known a lot of rich people, most of whom are absolutely wretchedly miserable. You all look at the uh, news and you know what's going on in Donald Trump's life. You think all of those hundreds of millions and billions of dollars help him when he's going through a bitter divorce, where before he even married the woman, they got to go in sit down with a lawyer and say, now, when I go on the road, I am going to cheat on you, but I'm going to marry you anyway, and if you marry me, here's what you agree to. That's what allegedly they went through. He said, I'll be away home a lot and I'm not going to be sleeping alone. You imagine a marriage based on something like that? When some of you were sitting there beside a spouse to whom you've been married for 30 some odd years? No, when Jesus Christ talked about being rich toward God, he meant rich between your ears and in your heart. He meant rich in faith and he meant rich in love and rich in knowledge. Abraham was rich and he didn't even have a brass doorknob. Abraham was rich and he didn't have a flushing toilet. Abraham was rich. He didn't have anything that we have in electronic energy slave. We think it's bad and probably cry if the toaster doesn't work. We get all upset and we got to light a candle and hunt for a flashlight when the lightning knocks out the electricity. We were worried as a church over whether we could keep you people in there indoors if we don't get the air conditioning in our new building in the next two weeks. We finally said, forget it, let them get a songbook and fan. There used to be a time in East Texas where there wasn't any air conditioning. They survived somehow. It's just a matter of what are the true riches, and I think once in a while we need to be reminded. I have been reminded forcibly by looking at those poor Kurds. I was reminded last night when a storm went by about five miles away from my front door, and I woke up this morning and saw the plight of some of those poor families in Kansas where about 22 people are dead and hundreds of people are weeping and wailing and deeply sad today over the loss of someone they love very much. So perhaps it is good to review once in a while what our Savior said about looking at the lilies in the field, looking around us, looking at what we have, evaluating it correctly, and realizing how, in fact, truly rich we are.